If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Please make sure your belts and helmet are securely fastened before launch. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. The Prime Minister came into uh, the House today, and um, he hasn't been around for three days, which has just been deplorable, if you ask me, uh, because that's when we get uh, like his uh, his uh, House leader, uh, Katrina Gould, standing up and wanting this all erased from the public record. Is that something that JT would have said? Maybe he should have been in the House. Uh, but finally, he was today, and before... All of that happened. He um, attended a news conference, didn't take any questions, and just basically uh, gave a little bit of a speech on uh, on his apology, or, or should I say our apology, our apology, Canada's apology, uh, for uh, what has happened. Here's a, a bit of what he had to say. The speaker was solely responsible for the invitation and recognition of this man and has wholly accepted that responsibility and stepped down. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust, and it was deeply, deeply painful for Jewish people. It also hurt Polish people, Roma people, to SLGBTQI plus people, disabled people, racialized people, and the many millions who were targeted by the Nazi genocide. I think it's pretty safe to say that everybody was offended. Uh, you know, uh, and again, listing everybody, saying the obvious is obvious. Um, but again, uh, deeply sorry about the position that Canada has put the Ukraine president in, that the Canada has put? Listen. I also want to reiterate how deeply sorry Canada is for the situation this put President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation in. It is extremely troubling to think that this egregious error is being politicized by Russia and its supporters to provide false propaganda about what Ukraine is fighting for. No, 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 no. You and your staff didn't check. And again, why is it always the rest of us who are blamed? When it comes for an apology, it's just a grocery list of the obvious. Listen. Friday's joint session was about what Canada stands for, about our steadfast support of Ukraine's fight against Putin's brutality, lies, and violence. It was a moment to celebrate and acknowledge the sacrifices of Ukrainians as they fight for their democracy, their freedom, their language and culture, and for peace. This is the side Canada was on in World War II, and this is the side we are on today. Doesn't feel like it. Not to me. 
You know, as NDP leader Jugmeet Singh said in the House, it took three days, three days for this guy to come to work. During an international crisis, as if as if the India thing wasn't bad enough, as if punting down the field, the public inquiry on Chinese Communist Party interference. To like not leave your your MPs to to fall on swords, to say things like, let's banish this from the record. Is that what you would have said, Mr. Prime Minister, had you been standing in the House yesterday? It is unbelievable how everybody points the finger at everybody else except this guy. This guy always seems to get away with it. And after the, he didn't take questions, boom. And then just went into the house and started repeating the same thing over and over again when he was pinned by Jugmeet Singh or Pierre Polyev. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that three days into an international event where people are laughing at us around the world, this man finally shows his face. And this is after a late night meeting in Ottawa with the caucus last night, and they're trying to debate whether he should apologize or not. There's pictures of it everywhere. All the limos lined up late at night, trying to get the Prime Minister through some crisis management. Unbelievable. Really? Look what he has done to this Liberal Party, let alone the country. Uh, have you have you noticed there was a writer's strike? Did you miss your favorite show? Uh, or did you? Late night shows sent, uh, off uh, as well. Uh, it's lasted forever. Now the Hollywood writer's strike is over. Writers Guild of America released the details of the tentative agreement with Hollywood Studios. So they are back. But we understand actors still out. Let's bring in Robert Thompson, trustee, professor of television, radio and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, Syracuse University, and here now. Robert, thanks for the time. Hope you're well i am i hope you are too so far so good bob let's break this down what does this mean because obviously writers are in but actors still out right so the uh writers have signed they've still got to put it to a full vote but they're uh allowed to go back to work now and the expectation is that that's what they their settlement will be a template and a catalyst for the actors to probably settle this fairly uh quickly that's what most are predicting but they are still out. So it's not like production uh, uh, can completely start. Writers can go back to work, but the actors um, are still out. The writers seem pretty happy. Uh, They got uh, the big things, minimum uh, uh, staffs on series, uh, compensation and residuals, and of course the complications of uh, uh, AI. They seem to have uh, gotten pretty much what they wanted, but we should remember these are only three-year-long contracts. And while compensation and residuals, you figure that out. You do the math. Here's what percentage you get, and uh, that's relatively simple. These other issues are not going to go away and I think are going to be even more complex uh, uh, in three years. Uh, Television is made different now than it would used to have in the 50s and 60s, 39 episodes per season, and into the 70s and 80s with 22 or 24. Um, That's going to rear its head again. Uh, in three years. And as for AI, we can only, we can't even imagine, I think, where AI is going to be three years from now. We can barely imagine where it's going to be three weeks. 
It'll be fascinating, Robert, to look at this deal and then the other one three years from now to see how much they've changed, especially, like you said, with AI and what have you. I mean, this is clearly a work in progress. So any idea, uh, timeline, when do studios, when does everybody hope to be back to work and producing shows? Well, uh, the late night shows, which you mentioned, which have been off the longest, they went off immediately. Uh, they're going to be back, uh, the bulk of them, on October 2nd. Uh, actually, some of them earlier than that. I think Bill Maher's real uh, time might be back Friday, and John Oliver, I think, has got a new episode on Sunday. And then October 2nd, Monday, uh, Kimmel and Fallon and Colbert and Seth Meyers, I think, are all going to come back. So they're they're going to be up and running uh, almost immediately. Um, the daytime talk shows, many of them were about to start anyway, and then they pulled back when they got so much uh, uh, protest from people. They'll be back really soon as well. Uh, you know, as far as the other uh, things, there's a little, there's much more complications um, uh, when you bring the actors in. But of course, that's not an issue yet because the actors haven't settled. yet. Uh, how does this change behavior being off for so long? Does it uh, change viewer habits or even those of advertisers? Well, that's a really good uh, uh, question in that this is this strike happened when the whole industry was kind of up for grabs anyway. COVID had thrown everything uh, um, uh, into a whole set of changed ways we watch movies and all of that. And I think with regards to late night television, they could be really vulnerable. Uh, advertising revenues uh, in the last five years for late night TV were way down anywhere. I, uh, anyway, I think uh, like. 40%, something like that. So people were starting to have a different relationship to the late night. And most of them were watching it during the, uh, um, you know, the morning after on, in clips anyway, which is harder to monetize. The ratings had gone down a bit. And now they've been off since, what, uh, May. I think a lot of people who still watched late night when it was on on television have de- devised other, other habits. They've gotten out of the... Mm. Uh, habit of uh, watching it. Some of them, like myself, have uh, learned to go to bed a little bit earlier. And I'm not <laughs> sure if late night is going to um, it's going to come back exactly the way it did. It was already kind of threatened, and they, they've been out for a long uh, time. I think already when uh, James Corden uh, decided to leave his show, that's going to re- be replaced not with a traditional late night comedy, but a different kind of program. That'll be interesting to see what that's uh, all about. What about ad revenue? Are they coming back? Are those uh, old habits coming back, or does that just all depend on ratings? Well, ad revenue, of course, is yeah, is in a, a state of uh, total flux. We, for decades and decades, uh, uh, even before television and radio, there was the idea that uh, you took ratings, uh, you found out how many people were listening or watching, and you charged according to that uh, uh, advertisers' messages. Now, so much of stuff is done on streaming, some of which does do have spot messages, uh, uh, and more places are going to be putting them on. But others uh, are competing for other kinds of advertising dollars in uh, other ways. As far as the shows that are going to come back on regular television, the broadcast shows, um, like the late night programs, like the talk shows, uh, that's going to be business as usual. They have, for every hour, there's about 18, 19 minutes of ads, which they'll be. Uh, which they'll be selling. And of course, Has, the one thing we always know is when the Super Bowl comes along, mm. uh, th- that, th- that those ad dollars go up every single year by a lot. Has this strike hurt uh, traditional local TV? 
Well, actually, uh, that's I hadn't uh, thought about that. I mean, uh, local TV, for the most part, has been business as usual. And local TV, of course, is the one part of uh, the television industry um, that isn't served by a lot of these other new developments. Uh, CNN doesn't co- uh, cover the local school board meeting or local elections or any of that kind of uh, uh, thing. Um, and I think uh, uh, a lot of people uh, have uh, perhaps turned to local TV because there's some sense of uh, sameness to it. Uh, it. It hasn't gone away. Also, there was a study I just read a couple of days ago um, that the number of young people who are still watching local TV, including local news, is a lot higher than you know, we're led to believe. I mean, everybody talks as though the only people still watching television uh, the old-fashioned way are you know over 70 years old, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Robert Thompson with us, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Robert, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. The latest in the National Post from Ravi Jain. Fix immigration system to unleash full potential of newcomers. India spat a barrier to those who wish to work and study in Canada. To talk more about all of this, the author of Ravi Jain, Jain Immigration Law Barrister and Solicitor and co-president of the Canadian Immigration Lawyers Association and is with us now. Ravi, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm actually from Hamilton, so it's nice to get All right. Call. All right. Great. Say hi to anybody you want to. Go ahead right now. Well, my mother, <laughs> Jane. There you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, your article, uh, System Needs to Unleash Full Potentials, uh, Full Potential of Newcomers. How is it not? What needs to be fixed here? Obviously, uh, 1.1 million uh, in Canada. We hit over 40 million in June of this year. That's a record uh, number. What needs to be fixed here? Well, a few things. Um, first of all, we're exploiting these international students. Um, you know, we have to we have to fund our community colleges and and universities uh, with public dollars, right? I mean, you know, international students they should be here to sort of you know learn about Canada, to uh, facilitate trade down the road, to facilitate foreign relations down the road. Uh, to take knowledge back home and 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 help improve their countries. I mean, the traditional reasons why we we bring in international students, but that's not why we're bringing them in today. We're bringing them in today to basically fund you know the public education system, and that's wrong because you know consultants, uh, in, particularly in India, will promise that, but also around the world, will promise them a guaranteed pathway to to permanent residence, and that's just not true. Uh, there's only about three in 10 that successfully transitioned to permanent residence and, um, you know, in, in the first 10 years of being here. So so it's they're really being sold a lie. Um, and the CBC did a really good um, fifth estate uh, show on this. Uh, so, so, you know, and then the problem is a lot of the provinces have frozen, like Ontario's frozen the um, the rate at which uh, they can charge domestic students. So the, co- the community colleges, universities, they can't even charge what they need to charge. Um, and like I say, they're just, they become overly reliant and they, they, they have carte blanche to charge whatever they want in terms of international students. So that's that's sort of the problem is that they're really relying on them 
to fund operations. So international students have uh, have, have become sort of uh, the bridge between lack of funding and where they need to to, to put them over uh, for another year. Uh, we hear lots about uh, the path that you know if you come to study, it will lead to citizenship. Is that uh, is that something relatively new, and is that why we're seeing such a, such the spike that we are? Well. Um... Yeah, it's it's not new, but it's it's something that uh, I mean I think students, you know, for many years have been coming with that in mind, and so it's a bit disingenuous, right? Because when they apply for a student visa, they have to show the intention to really go back to their home countries. But I think it's sort of understood that that's really not why they're coming here, and ministers have sort of acknowledged that. Um, very few will just come just for the pure, you know, benefit of the education system, and then they. They do want to transition, and that's the problem. Is that uh, you know to transition to permanent residence is is not easy. And I think the Senate uh, report just came out uh, with a recommendation. I think it's a good one. Uh, Senator Ratnamudbar um, is a friend of mine. She said, "Listen, I think what we should do is send letters. <laughs> you know, send letters with the visa saying, by mm. the way, it's not it's not a sure shot to permanent residence. Like there are, there are challenges. Not everyone's going to be able to transition. So I think that's a good idea, but." You know, uh, again, sometimes the whole application process is handled by by non-lawyer consultants in those countries. And and who knows if it'll ultimately get communicated. And mm. and so, yeah, I think I think there really needs uh, we really do need to to fix things. And, and by the way, um, it's not just that the funding, um, you know, is needed from these international students right now to sort of cover the next year. I mean, really what's happening is. Uh, there was another report I'm actually quoted, quoted on the Globe today um, in the Globe Mail where uh, Joe Friesen's a reporter did a really good job of digging into the profits of the community colleges. And what they found is that some of them are really making, you know, exorbitant profits. And they've gone from, you know, from from modest, modest profit to really astounding profits. So I think people should check that out because it's kind hmm. of shocking uh, that, you um, this is the direction they've gone in. So it's not it's not just about covering costs. I mean, they're 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 engaging. Some of them are engaging on quite aggressive, you know, expansions, right? To have multiple campuses in multiple cities, uh, and there's hundreds of millions. So it's it's really. I think I say in that piece that there. I think there's some greed involved, and I think that we need to get back to to funding properly at the provincial level. Uh, considering that um, uh, it seems to be a revenue stream for some colleges and universities, uh, what about the pressure on them to provide housing for uh, mm -hmm. students that come in like this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there should be some, I mean, given the profits, I mean, they should, there yeah. should be some thought to look, I mean, you know, if you really want to bring in students, what is your, what is your housing plan, right? What, what have you, what have you done to sort of provide, uh, you know, for, for housing directly, or are you building, you know, like it shouldn't be hard. I mean, the United States, they don't have this problem. I mean, they just, they have this thing called student housing and they build it and, you know, they, they cover the students that are coming in, but we have, you know, colleges here, like the public colleges, some of them are partnering with private colleges that are run out of strip malls or even in movie theaters. <laughs> okay. They oversubscribe mm. the students, some of them, and the students come here and they have nowhere to go. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's just, I think there's just some greed involved. And then what happens is they, you know, they go to these private colleges, which the critics have said that the education is quite substandard. Um, you know, they, they hire their own instructors, et cetera. 
And then what they end up doing is getting like a diploma from a community college. Uh, and then they get the coveted postgraduate work permit. So uh, from some of them, but not all of them. And that's that's even more egregious because sometimes the consultants shepherd them into private colleges that don't lead to the work permit. And the, and the students have no idea about that. So, so yeah, I think that there's we need to re-examine these sort of private public partnerships that are happening. And we need to start to, uh, I mean, my suggestion in the piece today was that we just we just remove entirely the ability of them to partner with private colleges that are operating in these substandard kind of mm. you know um, venues as per the critics. And how has uh, recent tensions between Canada and India complicated all of this? Well, I mean that it's complicated because I mean already there's incredible demand. Like it's it was an eight hundred thousand this year in terms of how many students came uh, from from abroad. We're going to hit 900,000 this year. Uh, so it's unsustainable. Like we can't just be bringing in all these international students. And, you know, there's no cap on the applications. Right. And the the, the former minister of immigration is now the housing minister uh, actually suggested that. And, of course, Quebec said, well, forget about it. Like this is provincial jurisdiction and, and uh, other provinces, I think, have a similar mentality. So. So there are major um, this 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 particular spat is complicated because you know how do you even process like the visas if if the diplomats if the visa officers are being sent home because they're scaling down the operations at the visa office at the high commission in in New Delhi so if that's the case I mean they can move files around electronically now but there's still some country specific expertise there so if they really you know, are threatened, um, you know, with violence or whatever, and there's just safety concerns, they'll bring more and more of them home, and that'll create more and more delays. And we're already dealing with over a 2 million backlog, because, you know, frankly, government workers were not able to pivot like the private sector, and, and the 2 million backlog was created in, in COVID. So this on top of that, I mean, not a lot of planning for a rainy day, and I think it's, it's going to impact processing, and that's going to impact people. Ravi Jane with us. Fix immigration system to unleash full potential of newcomers. The latest in the National Post. Uh, Jane, immigration law barrister and solicitor, and as well co-president of the Canadian Immigration Lawyers Association. Ravi, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Prime Minister apologized today, and um, and and included us all in that apology because it's we all have to work better. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I am doing well, uh, Scott. And it, I should have told Tom where to drop the needle on that on that track. But yes, I did request it. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. All Sorry, right, you're the PR. Still the hardest word. It is. That's right. Uh, you're the PR and pop culture expert. You're into the damage control. What are your thoughts of uh, the message from the prime minister today and the fact that he let his MPs bumble around in the house for two or three days before he said anything? Well, let's talk to your point, your very apt point, Scott, about bumbling around for two or three days. This should have happened right away, right away, as soon as they knew. Not wait around to see who was going to take responsibility to see if it, that would quell the fire. Not wait around to see to make Karina Gould stand up in front of the house and ask for it to be stricken from the record. No. Get in, get in. And these are the people who should know, Scott. This is what kind of blows my mind. Hmm. These are the people who deal with crisis all the time. These are the people who know the formula and deal with the best of the best across the country and, and consult with them if they, if they need that type of help. I can't imagine that there wasn't one person in the PMO not one person who said, you know what, we should, uh, we should, we should wait. 
let's wait a week. Let's see if it all blows over. But no, you have to jump on these things within 24 hours before it starts to spin out of control. You know, when you take a, a crisis, Scott, what you try and do is you think, okay, how bad is it? Is it red? Is it yellow? Or is it green? This was clearly red. And then you think, you know, what are the ramifications? Are there ramifications in Ottawa, um, in the province, uh, in the country, internationally? At that point, not only is it a red light crisis, but alarms should be going off at the same time. <laughs> and in order to quell and stop all of that, that whole ripple effect that has now happened, quite frankly, then you got to jump on it quickly. And and we have seen this time and time again in, in different instances when, you know, politicians or celebrities or what have you try to get out ahead of the story or try and, you know, um, take it down a notch by coming out with a statement very, very quickly, even if it's just a holding statement. Even if you're not sure what the ramifications are going to be, at least offer that this was a mistake and this should not have happened and that we are sorry that we let it happen um, and that it won't happen again and we'll do better. At least come out with something like that. But they did not. And now we're here on Wednesday, finally getting some sort of statement. Uh, Pierre Polyev jumping all over this thing. He's been at the cottage for three days. Uh, and your example of Katrina Gould saying this should be a race from the record is exactly why he should have been standing there saying that if that was his choice of words, rather than letting somebody else try to fumble their way through all of this. Uh, let me ask you, uh, last night, there's lots of meetings, uh, sorry, lots of pictures of all these black limousines parked outside of uh, uh, Ottawa and the House of Commons as there was a big emergency caucus uh, uh, meeting last night as whether he should even apologize or not. Are you surprised they're even having those discussions? And clearly they decided he should, which is why he did what he did today. But they all gathered late last night. I mean, there's pictures of it on social media, all the limos. And apparently the debate was, should you apologize or not? You know, I think that it was the debate could have been, should you apologize or not? Or it could have been, how do we apologize? Because the speaker, the role of the speaker uh, and the PMO is 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 basically to be at arm's length. So so that the prime minister does not have really jurisdiction over uh, the speaker's office. So that I don't think anybody, that, any nobody is buying that anymore. I mean, at the I, end of the day, I know, but you, you know what? That's the way our country is run, Scott. So you cannot yeah. just say, well. You know, no, no. Uh, but what uh, you do, what you do is you take the list, you take the list from the Speaker of the House. You go, thank you. OK, we'll look through, we'll vet your list. And then it gets part of the a bigger picture. You can't hold an event like this with a, uh, a president of a country who's at war with Russia and not do a better job. I'm sorry. A, a well, freelance, no, 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 a freelancing, a freelancing speaker has got to have some checks and balances by the government as well. OK, but but so what what the conversation probably was is. Do you, Prime Minister Trudeau, take accountability or do you apologize for the incident that happened? And that is probably a very multi-black limousine type of conversation. So <laughs> that's probably what the conversation was, Scott. And, and apparently, you know, what the apology was, was we apologize for this happening. Trudeau yeah. did not take self-accountability, but he apologized for the action that happened. So where does this go from here? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> anyway, 
it's, you know, I have to think about why it took so many people sort of jumping in front of the bus before Trudeau came oh, out. It's and, painful. And I have to think of the why. So what you know, when something like that happens, I just don't think it's their consultant or their the right hand person saying, "Well, let's have this person uh, jump in front of the bus and see if that makes the situation go away." Let's have this person. I have to think that there is some sort of accountability on Trudeau himself for not wanting to stand up and humiliate himself. Honestly, mm. I think that had a lot to do with it. I think there was a lot of people um, offering their advice in the PMO that said. Okay, you need to say something. And I think his first visceral reaction, well, it wasn't me. Are you surprised we haven't heard more people saying it's time for you to step down? Well, I think that depends what you're reading, because, uh, you know, if you're depending how your feeds um, fall out. I mean, there are a lot of people who are saying if you go into the comments of all these uh, articles, such as the one I'm reading on the globe. You know, there's a lot of people who say, well, you know what? You should do the right thing and you should step down. So there are people thinking of mm. it. But surprisingly, Scott, when you're reading these comments, and maybe it's just the the vehicle I'm reading them on, which is the Globe and Mail, there are people who kind of fall on both sides of the of the issue. But everybody seems to agree on one main point. When a dignitary that is in a fraught situation to begin with, such as Zelensky from Ukraine and his enemy is Russia, then all stops in terms of vetting must be pulled out to ensure that who is in there, you know exactly who they are, you Mm -hmm. know exactly their background, especially if they're an invited guest. The fact that that didn't happen, that, oh, maybe the speaker should have known better. Yeah, but also the PMO should have known better that, oh, you're bringing some random 98-year-old who has been living in the, you know, in North Bay, uh, hiding out, let's say, for what it really is, Scott, you know, hiding out in North Bay and living a very nice life, despite the fact that he was with the SS. And yes, there were a number of reasons why Germans joined the SS, because they were fighting Russia. There's a lot of people who are saying that. But make no mistake, he was a Nazi. He fought with the SS. He committed atrocities. And there's and I think that we also have to look at the number of groups that are being quiet about it. Yeah. You know, are there Ukrainian associations? Are they, you know, mm. coming out and yelling about this? No, they're actually not saying anything. So Ukraine has never been a pro-Semitic country, Scott, to begin with. So um I think that there's uh, a lot of work that needs to be done all around on this. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert on the Prime Minister's apology. Thank you, Alyssa. Be well. Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Talking about the fallout and repercussions of what happened, obviously, in uh, the House of Commons the other day when President Zelensky was in town and a Nazi was in uh, the gallery. Uh, The uh, Prime Minister, finally, after three days, uh, speaks up about this. He's in the House and apologizes on behalf of Canada. Some are saying, uh, Canada, what about you? Um, That being said, uh, as we move on, the speaker has stepped down, so a new speaker has to be uh, installed. How does that happen? How do we move forward with this? Will Parliament have to be paused while we wait for this? Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and here now. Nelson, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thank you, Scott. All right, before we get into what happens with the speaker here, just your thoughts, Nelson, on what has transpired over the last few days. Well, it's been quite dramatic. Uh, Canadian news 
doesn't usually make the international headlines. This one did in a big way, and deservedly so. Canada's a big backer of Ukraine, and here we have Canadian Parliament applauding, celebrating the role of uh, someone who um, played a role in, in a Nazi unit uh, in an army that was fighting the Canadian army, and we had Canadians killed, and this was all in the presence of the president of um, of Ukraine, who happens to be Jewish. Uh, and that was one of the major jobs of the unit that this Canadian was involved in, which was killing Jews and Poles. Is this all the speaker's fault, or does the government of the day um, uh, hold some responsibility here for not doing some sort of final vet? We know the speaker has his own staff and, and plays to his own, uh, walks to his own drum and such, but um, should there have been something in place considering just the enormity of this event? Uh, no, it's the speaker's fault. It's not the government's fault, and I don't know how much vetting you want to do. I mean, all kinds of people are introduced in Parliament uh, and in provincial legislatures, and how much energy and money and resources are going to devote to, you know, uh, welcoming the students from such and such school or welcoming this teacher, and then you find out... Again, uh, Nelson, with all due respect, this wasn't a typical day with the school kids all in the gallery. This was a, a, a very, very, very unique event. And, and how much time and security, it takes very little. A, a simple Google search would have figured this out. That's right. But uh, the government wasn't informed of this. No one had an idea that the speaker was going to introduce this gentleman. I believe the government completely on this. So I now there's a committee being struck that's going to look at these things, and I have no doubt that they're going to recommend that uh, notice be given to the House if someone's going to be introduced by the Speaker, and, that, and those people will be vetted. But I don't think you can blame the government here. That, 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 Although it makes the government look bad, just like it makes the whole parliament look bad, because people outside of the country... And, and why does it make the government look bad, Nelson? Because they clearly didn't vet enough, yet here we are debating that they don't need to vet. Well, clearly no, they no, do. No, I'm not saying they shouldn't vet. I'm not saying they shouldn't vet. I'm saying they're going to. I'm just saying in this case, the government didn't know this was going to be done. It's never happened... It's never happened that I know of in any provincial or federal legislature that uh, when the speaker calls on people in the gallery to get up, that those people have been vetted. And sometimes you'll have a, a, a group of a dozen or two dozen people in, in the gallery that are standing up. So, uh, you know, I mean, uh, look, the point I want to make is that the way the government wears this isn't because of uh, that they didn't vet. The way the government wears this in international eyes is people look at Canada and they figure, oh, well, there's a majority government, they control parliament, so in that way they're responsible. But when you get into the details, you realize actually the government didn't know. That's just I, I don't think that's yeah, but I don't think that's acceptable to anybody. I mean, I don't think anybody it's deliberately acceptable. did it. I don't. I, I don't think anybody did anything deliberately wrong. But I, I just don't think that's acceptable to Canadians. What about the fact that it took them well, three days to? Do, what about the fact that it took them three days to do all of this? To do what? To resign? To apologize? 
No, three no, days no, for the apolog- prime minister. He apologized the next day. The problem is that if you're talking of the speaker, it took a few days. No, no. You're talking about Trudeau. Yeah, Trudeau has not been in the House. This was the first day he was back in the House. Uh, should he have been to address this, considering it's an international occurrence? Well, today he apologized. Yeah, I think, look, but but you're apologizing for something that you had no hand in. So, look, I'm not defending Trudeau. I think, fine, it's an apology, but it, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn. The damage has been done. It's sort of yeah. irrelevant. I'll tell you, the apology isn't going to make any international news. Mm. Sure, you give an apology. Look, each individual member can give an apology. I should have realized right away that we were honoring somebody who was fighting one of our allies, the Soviet Ar- the, the Soviet Union, which was a, a close ally of the Canadian government in the Second World War. All right, Nelson Wiseman it took, with us. It took a Jewish group to... To, to expose this. Yeah, about 30 seconds. Uh, about 30 seconds for them to expose it. Uh, Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Nelson, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Real damage to the Jewish community, real damage to the war effort in Ukraine, and real damage to Canada's reputation. Now, finally, after three days, the Prime Minister has finally said something, but he's got to take action. What is he going to do in concrete terms to clean up this mess? Many asking the NDP leader the same question. Uh, This, of course, following the uh, apology in the House today, the Prime Minister finally making an appearance. Um, What does this mean moving forward? And uh, what does the Prime Minister need to be do, uh, need to do moving forward, especially when our reputation around the world uh, certainly has been tarnished? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. And here now, Arl, thank you for the time hope you're doing well thank you how is this being viewed around the world arl and let's start with uh, say russia china india our adversaries i think uh, you are quite right our reputation internationally has been badly tarnished when i first heard about this i was absolutely dumbfounded i did not know what part of waffen ss did our speaker in Parliament at the time, Anthony Rota did not understand. This is uh, uh, a division that was commanded by the SS. It had been accused of crimes not only against Jews, but also Poles and Slovaks. And by honoring a member of this division, uh, calling him both a Ukrainian and a Canadian hero, Uh, The Speaker not only compromised Canada, but he also endangered endangered Ukraine. And so we now have the spokesman from the Kremlin, Dmitry Peskov, saying that the Canadian Parliament needed to condemn Nazism, as we have not really uh, not done that already multiple times, but Canada was one of the first countries in the world to actually take up arms against Nazism while the Soviet Union, of which Russia formed the core, had reached to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact 
an agreement with Nazism to carve up Poland. So this is quite disingenuous, but it is a gift to Russia. And so we have a situation now where the Polish education minister said yesterday that uh, Poland is taking steps to start the extradition of Mr. Yaroslav Hunka. Mm. Uh, the Russians have called for this extradition in other parts of the world as well. Just the very discussion of Canada honoring someone who had been in an SS commanded division is doing us a lot of damage. Your thoughts on how this happened, Arl? Is this just a rogue speaker who is freelancing, or is this a lack of checks and balances? Because, again, to me, this isn't like an everyday occurrence or an everyday situation at the House of Commons where the kids are coming in and watching the gallery and all that. I mean, this was a very, very special event, a very sensitive event. Um, Is this all a rogue speaker, or should we not have been prepared for this? Well, of course, this begs the question in turn, how could we have a rogue speaker? <laughs> yeah. This is not just a case of someone walking into parliament and then volunteering to be speaker. He was carefully selected by this government. So uh, just disowning him at this moment uh, may not be enough because there had been that process of choosing the speaker and supporting that speaker. And the speaker doesn't just... Uh, uh, function by uh, himself, uh, a speaker has staff, and that staff is meant to do research. So somehow, if uh, uh, the speaker, Anthony Rota, did not go to school, but I believe he even went to university, and he had never heard of the atrocities committed by, by the Nazis, surely his staff should have done the work and uh, the government itself cannot that easily distance itself from someone whom they had selected and supported now for uh, a number of years as uh, a speaker. The damage um, is is way beyond uh, what we saw initially. So when Mr. Rota apologized to the Jewish community, this was uh, uh, even when... Uh, 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 somewhat bizarre because it made it sound as if this was only a Jewish problem, whereas the and of course it was a Jewish problem what mm. the Nazis had uh, done, but it was also a crime against humanity. Uh, the uh, SS committed crimes against humanity throughout the war, and uh, this is an offense against all decent people uh, around around the world. And that's how this has to be viewed. That this is of significant magnitude, and it is just to me again incomprehensible how the speaker could have said those words. Uh, how someone uh, who seemed that ignorant or that unwilling to even explore the most basic facts that a high school graduate should understand about the SS could commit uh, this kind of uh, 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 you know, mistake uh, is is uh, just uh, something that uh, is is beyond uh, uh, the imagination of of most of us. And so, I think there's a good deal of work to be done uh, to try to remedy this. And uh, the Russians are making the most of this. This is terrible for Ukraine. It is bad for Canada. Uh, there is no silver lining in this. And um, uh, the government, uh, I think, has to uh, do more 
then just get rid of the speaker uh, or just just apologize. There have to be steps taken to ensure that this can never happen again. And uh, there may be others in government that also need to be held accountable. Uh, obviously, before this issue, just a few days ago, we were talking about India and in the collision course that Canada was on with them, uh, all kinds of propaganda coming out of India, including asking for the prime minister to step aside. Do we see, do we need to start having those questions here? Is, in other words, for India, a new prime minister would be a starting point. Is that what we need to do here? Look at the curve of the image of Canada. If we just look back uh, a year, Canada uh, was viewed with astonishing respect internationally. Whenever you travel, you will hear in the high circles that there's criticism of the United States, uh, there's criticism of China, uh, even of Britain and France and Germany. But there's usually very little that is not positive about Canada because we have been viewed as a country that has no colonial past, no colonial baggage, that has repeatedly uh, supplied uh, both lives and treasure to safeguard the freedom of others, where we have been supporting uh, the developing uh, world, where we have contributed to fighting climate change, where we have, uh, in every possible way, tried to help Ukraine. And now we are in a situation where we have a huge dispute with India, where we have uh, compromised ourselves and endangered Ukraine. And so one cannot help but wonder what has happened to the diplomatic skills of this government, to the due diligence that they need to do at every level. It is almost as if uh, uh, they are just uh, turning from uh, a professional government to one that is just unable to effectively deal with issues that can have very long-term uh, effect and damaging effect to Canada. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Fascinating times, Arl. Thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You know, what I love about uh, uh, all the action going on lately is that there's so many polls going on and so much polling going on that y- you really get an almost immediate read of uh, of how Canadians are feeling. But now it appears there's so much crisis going on that by the time we get a poll out, it's about last week's crisis, not the one that's happening this week. I'm not sure how they all keep up. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, uh, Enns Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leisure. And here now, Andrew. Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing. I'm doing great, Scott. It's been a while, so pleased to be back on your program. Yeah, and uh, according to the new poll from Leger, conservatives uh, holding on to their summer lead over the Liberals. This was done September 22nd through the 24th after uh, the Prime Minister announced in the House of Commons uh, that uh, there was evidence linking India to uh, the assassination of a Sikh extremist here in Canada. Did that event affect that polling at all or in any way? Uh, you know, I-, I can't say for sure. My, or too early. My gut says, quite frankly, that probably didn't have a big, uh, big impact because we've seen this kind of uh, these kind of numbers now for for uh, for a few months. Uh, so so I think there's uh, there's other other conditions, uh, you know, that are affecting this. And, and 
quite frankly, it was pretty early in the, uh, you know, literally it would have been days uh, yeah. into fielding. So I think people even, you know, I think we're all still sort of more shocked by what we were hearing from the prime minister on that file uh, before we're starting to internalize how we felt about it. And as well, by the time I think, well, I don't even think we've got all the information regards to in regard to all of that. In Blamo, we have a speaker crisis uh, on our hands. <laughs> it goodness. seems it seems as soon as you do polls and you get okay, here's how we're feeling. Oh no, that doesn't count anymore because there's a new crisis on your hands. Are you polling for this whole speaker business? Uh, you know, I, I I actually don't think we are. Um, I, you know, it's it's just, I guess we we could have been this week, but. To be honest, I, I think we're uh, we're just going to sort of watch this one and see where it plays out. It's uh, I, I don't know what to say, Scott, about it. It's just sort mm. of my God, it's shocking, but it's created a you know an international uproar and has put us again has this government a, a little bit on the defensive. Well, not even a little bit, more more on the defensive, which is not where I think they want to be when you're um, you know when you're multi, you know double digit points behind your uh, your opponent. Uh, what about uh, obviously over the summer uh, conservatives maintaining their lead and as you've mentioned it wasn't it hasn't been a good year or summer rather for uh, the liberals what about the NDP how are they doing in all of this uh, obviously they have their their confidence deal with the liberals is that working for them are they benefiting as a party from that yeah I if I was assessing the value of that confidence deal I'd be like uh, we're, they're just not making any headway, really. Um, you know, they have been the high teens, maybe scratched the surface of 20, uh, you know, 20 points. Uh, but I just, uh, you know, not, they're just not making much, making up much ground. In fact, uh, in when I look at some of these numbers regionally, I start to see evidence that potentially the NDP are losing some some support. And it looks like it's going to the Conservatives. Uh, you know, I think it's, I think in fact, uh, you know, you've got a government, you know, our poll shows 60% of Canadians are, are not satisfied with, with the current federal government in terms of its performance. And I think the, a bit of the danger for the NDP is that they're being more and more often seen as sort of part of that government. Yeah. And that was my next question too. Is there a sweet spot? Is there a time where, uh, they could see some benefit from actually going it alone, from uh, from going uh, from ending the or for ending the agreement. Well, I, I think um, I, I think they have to take a look at some of these some of these big issues that are out there. Afford housing affordability is one, and you know at the moment the strategy with with uh, Jagmeet Singh and, and company and the NDP is to try to work with the government to push them on certain air, you know, certain improvements in these areas. The problem is that when I look at this in terms of what it's been doing for them over the past uh, 18 months, the life of this agreement, they don't get any credit, even if they are hmm. having success pushing for these things, they don't get the credit. And, uh, and, and more now I'm looking at it, if they don't actually solve some of the issues, or if Canadians don't feel they're solving the issues, they may be actually picking up a bit of the blame. So at some point when you say go, you know, when they say like, where do you, where do they go it alone? They may have to pick an issue and say, we're not comfortable. This government's prepared to do what we think needs to be done. And, and therefore we are going to push this and see where, uh, you know, where we end up. And if it's an election, so be it. 
Only got a few seconds left. I know that Leger goes into the United States as well. And uh, one thing I noticed in your research, they seem to be a bit more happier than Canadians these days. Well, you know, just a, just a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, some of the situation in terms of their state of the uh, state of their finances. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we asked a question about how people would describe their household finances and, and you know, 60% of Canadians thought it was good. Almost 70% of Americans said it was good, 67%. Mm. So, yeah, things might be a little uh, a little rosier down there. Maybe they're just not paying attention to politics in that country. <laughs> Maybe they've just got <laughs> tired. Uh, Andrew ends with his executive vice president, Central Canada for Leger, a new Leger poll. Conservatives continue their summer lead. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Terrific. Appreciate it, Scott. Have a good rest of your show. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, with the poo that's hitting the fan in regard to uh, the Nazi in in the gallery during the address uh, by President Zelensky the other day, you might remember there was another crisis on the stove, another another grease fire, another dumpster fire going on in regard to uh, Canada's relation with India when the Prime Minister stood up in the House of Commons and basically said there's uh, evidence uh, linking India to the death of a Sikh extremist in British Columbia. Um, where is that story? How does that progress, considering where we are today with the issues around um, uh, the uh, former Nazi in the gallery. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst in here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. This is twice in three days. People are going to start asking about a relationship. This is unbelievable. You know, we can't even finish talking about one disaster and we're on to the next one. Uh, so again, before we get to India, your thoughts on what has transpired with the speaker and the apology today. And I guess oh. my question to you is, you know, we know uh, the protocol and the speaker has certain rights and whatever to 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 do and, and whatever he wants to freelance, if you want to call it that. Uh, but at the end of the day, isn't it up to the government of the day to keep that house secure, especially during an event of this magnitude 100 percent, and i think that with respect to this particular incident i don't think anyone wants to go to the you know the nth degree and say a 97 year old man or however old he was yeah was a threat to the security of parliament but it's, it's deeply embarrassing and it shows that people aren't doing their jobs and this is what they're paid to do well, you know again you know i worked 32 years in security we have internal security services we have vetting agencies that do this and that's what they do for you know from you know monday to friday scott and clearly that they didn't do what they're supposed to do. So at a minimum, it's an embarrassment. Worst case scenario, it might be a bit of a threat, but clearly someone dropped the ball on this one. Are you surprised that so many are throwing the speaker under the bus as opposed to, well, what about other checks and balances? Why is it all on his shoulders? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, he's the most visible character, right? I mean, he's the guy that, you know, maybe led this thing or he's he's the figurehead. And, and you know, as well as I do that, figureheads, and ultimately the buck stops here. Well, President said that in the 50s, and as a consequence, his head has to roll, which is unfortunate. But yeah, a lot of mistakes were made before it came to his level, but because he is who he is, he's the one who has to pay the ultimate price, I suppose. All right. This crisis has pushed uh, the India crisis off to the back burner. Uh, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, says he has seen the evidence that the prime minister is speaking of and uh, that action needs to be taken. What needs to happen next? India says they're still waiting for uh, the proof. So what has to happen next? Well, you know, a bit of a clarification. Jagmeet Singh has seen the intelligence. And in Canada, intelligence is not evidence. It's, it's 
The two are, are, are treated very, mm. very differently under Canadian law. He's convinced it's okay. Surprise, surprise. He's a, he's a Canadian Sikh. Of course he's going to see it's okay. And look, at, I haven't seen it, Scott. You haven't seen it. So it's impossible for us to determine exactly how credible slash real this particular piece of, of information is. Um, it's it's not going away, uh, in, in, despite the fact we now have another crisis. And wait, didn't the, the Sikh crisis... Um, Sort of overturn the Chinese political interference. Yes, that we were about yeah. two weeks ago. <laughs> we got a we got a six burner stove going here, Phil. <laughs> I, I think so, but you know, obviously, this is a very serious accusation that the Canadian government has put on the Indian government. Uh, there has to be some, you know, amount of responsibility. There has to be some, I don't know, resolution to this thing in terms of what exactly happened. I guess wait and see. But then again, on Friday, you're going to call me because there's another crisis that's just come across the Trudeau ledger, I suppose. So uh, is and, you know, you, you don't really know what to hear or what to to make of what you hear coming out of India. That being said, they're painting a picture of Canada that is not pretty um, a haven for terrorists, that sort of thing. Uh, are they being truthful when they're saying we haven't seen the evidence that Canada has or or uh, sorry, not evidence uh, in from uh, intelligence? No, no. I mean, from what I saw, Mr. Trudeau claims to have sent, my, you know, my former boss, the director of CSIS, a national security advisor, Jody Thomas, over to India to present the Indians with the information they had linking the, their security service to the killing of Mr. Najjar. That's what the Canadian government's saying. It's kind of a he said, she said situation right now. It's really hard to say. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that India would want to deny it if, in fact, there is a link between one of their security services, and clearly a crime on Canadian soil. But on the other hand, uh, with all due respect to Mr. Trudeau, his government's not that credible either with a, a whole bunch of issues. So, you know, as a, as a just an innocent retired taxpayer, Scott, I'm not quite sure who to believe. <laughs> <laughs> just an innocent taxpayer, <laughs> Phil. Oh, man. Uh, boy, a lot of people right now are nodding their heads with you, Phil. That's for sure. <laughs> trying to do, figure out the same thing. Um, it seems now that this is up to the prime minister or Canada to prove that, OK, what happens now, sunshine? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. There obviously have to be uh, more talks with Indian officials, including not just the Modi government, but, you know, their security services. I'm going to go on a limb here and suggest that we do have an existing relationship with India's security services. They're called Section 17 arrangements. That's under the CSIS Act. We're allowed to meet with people and share intelligence with other agencies on the approval of the public safety minister and the foreign minister. I'm guessing that relationship is a little bit strained right now, given these allegations of Indian involvement. But there's no question that there are mechanisms and forms we can use to try to get to the bottom of this. Will that mean we'll get an eventual admission of guilt by India? I'd be a little surprised at this point, but at least we can put our each party can put its cards on the table and say, uh, what, you know, show me yours, I'll show you mine, and we'll try to get some kind of uh, answer to exactly what happened a couple of weeks ago in, in Surrey. Um, can you just sit on this? Uh, can you say what you've said, meaning the prime minister, and then just sit on this and and wait for something to happen? Because it it seems that that the, the ball is in his court and it's not really going anywhere at this point because it may seem hard to prove. Yeah. Um, in fairness to the government, they, they are juggling infinite number of balls simultaneously, just like we were when I worked with these with Scott. You're, yeah. always, you're doing more cases than you can actually handle at any given time. So it's not easy for them. Um, this obviously has a, a great profile. I mean, if it's true, we're talking about the killing of a person on Canadian soil by someone from a foreign government. Again, if this is all true, 
I like the things that he can't sit on it, that it, it, it can't be pushed down the road because I'm sure the families want some kind of answers as to what happened to Mr. Najjar. I guess it's, uh, yeah, it's wait and see time in, in terms of how far the government wants to carry this ball and whether or not more information is going to come out. But again, we're talking about a government, in, in all honesty, that seems to lurch from crisis to crisis. And you know as well as I do, you're the media business, Scott. Uh, you know, you, squirrel, what, what, what's new kind of dominates the headlines, <laughs> and governments often are, are in a position to have to respond to it or react to it as opposed to controlling the narrative. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis and Thre- Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. Phil, I'm sure we'll chat again uh, before you have to pay any more taxes, hopefully. Phil, you take care. Five o'clock, Scott. We'll talk there you- All right. Take care. Thank you. <laughs> you Bye-bye. Interesting article in the National Post today. Uh, John Iveson ha- had penned this, and it is entitled, A Sober David Dodge Informs the Liberals Their Fiscal Bender is Finished. The former Bank of Canada governor painted a stark picture of Canada's economic economic situation while the liberals still seem to think they're doing a bang up job to talk more about all of this ian lee is with us uh, dr ian lee associate professor sprott school of business carleton university and here now ian thank you for the time hope you're well doing very well thanks very much scott are you surprised by the comments of the former bank of canada governor no and and forgive me for patting myself i guess on the back Um, Maybe I shouldn't, but I testified last Thursday and said essentially the same thing. I did not say it as brilliantly as David Dodge or as eloquently, nor do I have his gravitas or stature. Full disclosure for all that. But I said very, very, very similar things. Got to focus on the fundamentals. But let's focus on David Dodge. This is about David Dodge. For those of your listeners, David Dodge is the closest thing, and I'm not religious, you know that. But if, if if there is a god of economics in Canada, it's David Dodge. Hmm. He has a career that is just unbelievable. You know, he's been 40 years as one of our most distinguished and remarkable and outstanding public servants. He did his PhD at Princeton in economics. And I'm not trying to tell your listeners that we should all fall prostate on the flat ground because somebody has a, you know, a really good PhD from a good university. I'm just saying he's highly educated. He worked throughout and across the government of Canada throughout his career. He was deputy minister of health. He knows the health file inside out and backward. He was deputy minister of finance Canada for years. Then he became the governor of the bank Canada. If there's anybody in 40 million Canadians who understand this economy, it is David Dodge. And what David Dodge said to the finance committee, and it was, he said it very quietly. I mean, he's an older man. I think he's 77 or 78 now. And he said, look, we're in deep doo-doo. I'm paraphrasing it in my colloquial English. You know that. Hmm. Uh, But he said, we are in deep doo-doo. We're in deep doo-doo because of two separate broad sets of trends. The first one is there's a whole bunch of, well, there's four structural, which means deeply underneath the hood, permanent shifts are taking place. One, aging population, we all know about. Two, climate change. Three, new technologies that are transformative and revolutionary, like artificial intelligence. And and all of this, so those are three of the four he identified. Those are the three I want to talk about briefly. And he said it's going to require a lot of investment by governments uh, to address these three shifts. I mean, enormous amounts. And he said, the, unfortunately, the government has been spending more and more on current services, sometimes called consumption, you know, increased child care and dental and mm-hmm. all that stuff that we like. Social but, issues. Socially, social policy, social income support programs. Everybody says, rah, 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 of course. But he said, if we're going to confront these problems, and if we don't, we're in really big trouble, 
then he says, we're going to have to divert or change or reallocate or uh, dedicate a lot more money to deal with these problems, which means we'll have less money for all of these goodies, social goodies that we like and want. The second problem, and that's what I really focused on in my testimony, and others have too. It's not just me or David Dodge. C.D. Howe's been talking about this. Don Drummond's been talking about this. The Conference Board of Canada's been talking about this. The Ottawa, uh, sorry, the National, um, the the Conference, the uh, Canadian uh, Chamber of Commerce has been talking about this, Baron Beatty. And that is that investment is declining in our country. Business, private, capital investment. Now, most people's eyes glaze over when they hear that, you know, productivity and business capital investment. But to put it as bluntly and and clearly and straightforwardly as possible, as Philip Cross, former very senior statistician, did when he came to my class, literally weeks before the pandemic in uh, 2020, if you want to know how any country is going to perform in the near future, three, four, five years out, look at the aggregate investment in business today. Because those... Capital investments are the investments in the plants of today, the machinery and equipment of today, the technologies of today that produce the revenues, the sales, the businesses, the growth of two or three or four years from now. Our productivity for the last eight, nine years has been declining. Capital investment has been declining. Not only foreign investment has been declining, but domestic investment. In other words, Canadians with money have been declining because This And he said it politely and nicely, but I'll say it very bluntly because I'm a blunt person. Because the government has placed more and more uh, barriers and restrictions, what, you know, and I can quickly point to them, you know, the famous no pipeline bill. Yeah, exactly. uh, Of a couple of years ago, the no mining bill is the mining companies are called. So we uh, patted ourselves in the back. We've got the most stringent, you know, pipeline rules and the most stringent mining rules in the world. Yeah, we do. And guess what these huge corporations and people with money have done? Uh, no, thank you. Bye-bye. I'm out <laughs> yeah. of here. I can mm-hmm. go to the United States. It's right next door. They speak the same language and they're a lot bigger and they're nowhere near as, as hostile to capital investment. And so we are losing. I mean, we are. We could say we're winning the war on virtue. We can all tell ourselves how wonderful we are. We're much nicer and we're much higher standards than those bad Americans, you know, but they're winning because they're getting our capital investment because they're shifting there because the regulations and the framework that regulate industry are increasingly severe, increasingly hostile to business capital investment. Now, that's, I realize, a, a sort of a prejudice statement. Let's just say that the regulations and the rules and the laws are more and more stringent, mm-hmm. more and more difficult, higher and higher, tougher and tougher. And people say, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, if you want to scare capital out of Canada, (laughs) if you want to send capital to the United States and say, you go get the jobs, we'll just have lots of high unemployment. And so what Dr. David Dodge was saying was we are facing some very serious problems going forward. And our standard of living on a per person basis is going to decline, go down. And we have lived for 150 years where our standard of living went up year after year after year. We've been used to it. We just think it's part of our our, our natural condition of being a Canadian. Mm. And he says, this is, we are going in the opposite direction where we're going to seer, have serious long-term structural decline if we don't respond to these problems. And this is due to policy. So what does the prime minister need to do? Um. I know the prime minister can do it. He's not, I've never, even though I've been very critical and I've been always critical of his policies, not of the man, the person. Okay. And what he's going to have to do, and I'm not sure he will, 
because I think it'll offend everything he believes in, is he's essentially got to reverse a lot, not every last one, but a lot of his policies of the last eight years, nine years in office that he was so proud of because he said, hey, we're making a, you know, we're the cleanest country in the world and toughest environmental standards in the world. And we're keeping out all these industries we don't like and so forth. And as I said, it may, we may feel morally virtuous, but what it's doing is it's hurting us. So he's got to re-examine those rules that have put such high barriers on mining companies, such high barriers on timber companies, on pipeline companies, on capital investment. We've got to create an environment in Canada that is supportive of investment in Canada. So the companies say, hey, we want to go to Canada and invest and not have to bribe every one of them with $15 billion. And that's the basically the only way now we're getting companies to come here is if we bribe them with a $15 million government grant from Ontario mm. and, and Canada, Canadian government. We can't bribe every company for every plant on every street corner in every city and every province. We don't have enough money to do that. We've got to create conditions that are that are in, in organically attractive. So companies will say, hey, I don't need a subsidy to go there because, hey, it's a good country to do business in. The people are educated, they're disciplined, and we can we can do business in that country. That's not the image or the message going out in the international business community. They're increasingly seeing us as hostile to business. When you have prime ministers and, and, and other people sneering at companies that make profit, this is a very, very bad direction to be going in because then they say, okay, I get you. You don't want me here. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm gone to the US of A, $25 trillion. And they're right next door and they speak English and they're really wealthy and they love capitalists and they love capitalist investment. So he's got to reverse really his almost his entire, you know, philosophical shift and become a blue liberal. I'm not saying become a conservative. He's got to become a blue liberal like Jean Chrétien or John Manley or Paul Martin. And and essentially walk back from his very red, woke, liberal policies of the last eight years. David Dodge, uh, David Dodge former Bank of Canada governor, uh, governor delivering uh, very severe fiscal warnings to the feds while testifying at a House of Commons Finance Committee. Also, Dr. Ian Lee did. Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. And for that, I'm very, very sorry. Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. But at the end of the day, isn't it up to the government of the day to keep that house secure, especially during an event of this magnitude? 100%. And I think that with respect to this particular incident, I don't think anyone wants to go to the, you know, the nth degree and say a 97-year-old man or however old he was yeah. Oh, it's a threat to security of parliament, but it's, it's deeply embarrassing, and it shows that people aren't doing their jobs. It shows people are not doing their jobs. Phil Gursky of CSIS, how long do we have to sit here and listen to the liberal government say this was all the speaker's fault? Yes, the speaker freelanced. Yes, he shouldn't have. Yes, he made a tremendous mistake. But as Phil Gursky from CSIS said, former CSIS analyst, it is still 100% up to the government of the day to protect and manage what is going on in the House of Commons. And clearly, that did not happen. Yet that doesn't stop the Prime Minister from standing up in front of everybody and saying, on behalf of Canadians, on behalf of the Parliament, we just played a clip of Doug Ford apologizing for the Greenbelt. 
For God's sake, is it impossible for the prime minister to do the same when we're embarrassed? This isn't a, this isn't about a green belt. This is worldwide international news. And the prime minister cannot suck it up. After three days of letting his MPs do all of his dirty work and even say such words as, we're going to wipe this from the record. Would the prime minister have wiped it from the record? Perhaps he should have been at work yesterday when Katrina Gould, his house leader, said that. Maybe he should have been saying his own words instead of having his MPs speak for him. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him after the 6 o'clock news and read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, I'm tired of listening to liberals defend this guy while everyone else resigns and he stays standing. When is he going to fall on the sword? Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, as we talked about yesterday, as the guy from CESA said, Phil Gursky, 100%. This is on the government. Hey, Scott, the people love the prime minister and love means never having to say you're sorry. And that's what it is, Scott. I mean, liberals are so, so, so into drinking the Kool-Aid. They just can't fathom the guys made a mistake. No, it's no, no, amazing. I, they can. They can. They absolutely can. And I'll tell you why. Uh, last night we saw reports that there was, it appeared to be, although we don't exactly know what, but an emergency caucus meeting. They're aware. Yeah, they were all, they, in, nah, they were all in Ottawa last night. There's yeah. pictures of it. They no, were they having know. a meeting to decide whether to do this. They know that this is a monumental screw up. Where, where I get bristly about this is twofold. One, that we had to go three days without the person who is the face of our country, whether you love Justin Trudeau or you don't, he is the face of our yeah. country. He yep. needed to be up front in the house of commons. He needed to be the one dealing with this head on. And then we, we use the example. Apparently at the cottage for, apparently at the cottage yeah, for three days. Well, okay. So we use the example before, and I know it's not exactly the same thing, but a general doesn't hide in his cottage when his troops are going to war. You yeah. are up front. You are leading the way. That's what you do. But the second thing, and I'm just looking at the Toronto Star headline. Now, the Toronto Star is not a conservative publication. It is mm -hmm. generally seen as a left-leaning, liberal-leaning publication. Justin Trudeau apologizes on behalf of Canada. Yeah. I, I, What's that? I, I don't didn't need, do anything. I didn't, yeah, I did nothing. I don't need to be apologized for. I wasn't there. I didn't meet the man. My, exactly. my staffers didn't meet the man. We didn't not vet whoever was, what all the possible things all end up landing in your lap, not mine. Why am I being apologized for? I don't know. I don't know. But this because is, he's cowardice and he doesn't have the kahunis to apologize. Well, but not, I don't think he has the We capacity. just played a clip. We, we just played a clip of Doug Ford eating crow yep. over the green yes. belt. Can yep. this man not do the same? I don't believe he can. I don't, I, and, and I don't believe that where is the example that in history with, you know, with his dad, who his dad was and all the rest, where has this ever been a requirement that Justin Trudeau would have to apologize for something? And mm. so I, I, I truly, I do not believe Based on this and other things, he has, yeah, he doesn't he, have that capacity. He has yeah. an enormous capacity to apologize for others. We've seen that many, 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 many times. Others' sins he has atoned for, but it's his own that he just cannot seem to acknowledge that he or the people that he represents or he is in charge of 
is responsible. Who was the um, who was the prime? Who was the president of the United States who had the, the "Buck Stops Here" sign on his desk? Um, I can't remember who that was, but that's uh, that, that Roosevelt. Roosevelt. I think you're right. Yeah. That is what this is supposed to be. As the leader of the government, whether you invited this person or not, your it, it is a liberal member, even though he was the speaker, it was a liberal politician, a member of your party under your watch in the house of commons that you are the government, you are supposed to be upfront, accepting responsibility, throwing yourself on the sword saying, I'm sorry, we screwed up. Not all of Canada, not you people. This is not a learning moment for Canadians to learn about Russian disinformation. That's another disinformation. That's his own disinformation. That's a red herring. Make it so that, Hey, you know, we'll all learn from this. No, I don't want to learn from this. I have never invited a Nazi into my living room. (laughs) I don't need to learn about not having Nazis over for dinner. That is not something that I am having a problem with. Or blackface for that matter. Or any of these things, Scott. uh, Issues with the Aga Khan and and issues with, with, you know, all these problems that he's been called. None of these have ever just been, oh, you know what? I just completely blew it. It's all on me and Mm -hmm. I'm going to accept responsibility. And again, you can hate Doug Ford till you're blue in the face. You cannot take away from the fact that he at least apologized and some of, and some of his people stepped away and stepped down. That may not be the end of it, but at least there was an acknowledgement that something bad had happened and we are going to say we are responsible. This is never happening with, with the federal liberals, not under this guy. It's amazing to me that, and I felt sorry for all the other liberals that are just standing there waiting to fall on the sword, including uh, Katrina Gold, who made that stupid, uh, stupid all comment about erasing uh, the record and such. I mean, you know, like at what point do they say you fall on the sword, sir? You resign. Well, so that's a great question. I know we're so late on time, but yeah, we are. when is somebody, now maybe they do, maybe they do and maybe there's no, but, but surely in these caucus meetings, there is someone who is able to say, by the way, Mr. Prime Minister, it's get getting the hell out. How about yep. you get out there and do this and don't make us have to be the one. But I don't know if anyone has the ability to do that. I don't know. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton uh, Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Jeanette in Mississauga. Hi, Scott. Remember the good old days back in 2015 when the Liberals said Canada's international image had suffered under Stephen Harper? I don't think this is what Canadians wanted when Trudeau said the Liberal government would reinstate Canada's place on the world stage. What a catastrophe this is. Jeanette, keep writing, except to pass. 